everybody, I'm Dr. Megan Hanlon, and welcome to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do, and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series, I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, Sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. So today I'm joined by Professor Clean O'Farrelly, Chair of Comparative Immunology and the first ever female to be elected Chair of Fellows in Trinity College Dublin, as well as being a previous President of the Irish Society of Immunology. So Clean's research focuses on the immune system present in the liver and research into combating hepatitis C virus. And so, yeah, I'm thrilled to sit down and chat to you today, Kleena. So thanks again for coming on Unraveling Science. Thank you, Megan. Looking forward to this. Great. So um, I suppose I'll start right in. I'm interested in what Kleena Farley was like in school. Uh, and were you always interested in science or was there a different career in mind? Oh, I was a total menace at school. <laughs> I was constantly, I haven't changed a bit in this respect. I was constantly talking constantly in trouble. So I went to a wonderful boarding school in Athlone, Our Lady's Bower in Athlone. Um, oh, that, uh, I actually have to stop you there. I, I went to Our Lady's Bower. Go away. Yeah. <laughs> that is wonderful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I actually was researching, I was looking you up last night and I saw an interview and you said, you know, I went to a boarding school in Our Lady's, or in Athlone. And yeah. I was saying to my dad, I said, there's no other boarding school at known. I was like, it has to be the Bower. Uh, yeah, so I was, I'm from Adair County Limerick and um, my parents thought that there weren't any great schools back then. So this is back in the 60s, so long, long, long ago. And they, they did the round of the boarding school and they met the Reverend Mother of um, Our Ladies. They visited Our Ladies Bower and met the Reverend Mother, who's this amazing woman who had been a barrister before she entered. And uh, they were very impressed by her. I was impressed by the fact that they had horses. And so we, we went horse riding twice a week and ultimately ended up hunting. Imagine, imagine being in a boarding <laughs> school where we could go hunting and we used to go to point. We managed to persuade that same reverend mother that we needed to be released from the stress of exams. And several of us went off to a point to point, I remember at one stage. But anyway, during those, yeah, during those years, I broke many, many of the teachers' hearts, the nuns' hearts, and even my friends, because I'd be always chatting during study, and oh, it was just a menace. No, I wanted to be a, a lots of different things. Um, I wanted to be an architect and a town planner. I thought I was, my father was an architect, mm-hmm. and my father was constantly giving out about the fact that Ireland Ireland had made no attempt to plan its towns properly. But, uh, so I thought I was going to be a town planner, but I wasn't going to limit my horizons to town planning in Ireland. I was going to go to Africa. <laughs> How naive you are when you are a child. <laughs> this notion. Anyway, anyway, I used to read an awful lot. I was absolutely passionate about books. And there, was, uh, there were two really great libraries in this very small little library, a little junior library for junior school and then a senior one. And that was all terribly important. But I do remember we did have a wonderful science teacher who used to bring us on uh, field trips. This is up, uh, for biology in junior cert, for the junior cert course. We used to go on these field trips um, out across the bog. And I remember her showing things. And then that was reiterated by, we had an, an, in Trinity, an amazing lecturer in zoology called Frank Geel. And uh, he organized field trips for us. And so and out into County Meath, 
and we near Mouth and Douth. And Trinity used to have a, a wonderful big old house out there called Townley Hall. And it used to be available to students and student activities. And so uh, Frank Geel organized for a whole lot of us to go out there, stay in Townley Hall and then go on these field trips. And uh, so they really echoed those field trips in, uh, in the bower. And did you do zoology or, or what was your... No, uh, oh, so the other influence from then, actually, so my father was an architect. My mother had done science. Okay. And she, it was very unusual in those days, yeah, for to have parents, both of whom had been to university. I realized that subsequently, I thought it was normal when I was a kid. But my mother had done biochemistry um, and maths and actually had done biochemistry, had studied, was under Conway. You're, you're too, too young to kind of uh, to know the significance in, in the UCD firmament and the biochemistry firmament. Ireland had a, a brilliant biochemist called Conway. He taught out in UCD and the, the UCD now have the Conway Institute who was named after him. Mm-hmm. And it was said that uh, he was, there was a possibility he might be nominated for the Nobel Prize. Um, he did a lot of work on radioactivity and measuring iodine in, in humans. And so, anyway, my mother had done her bike. I'm only really realizing all of this now. Mm. <laughs> and so I talk about it with, with my mother. But she obviously had kind of uh, influenced me in terms of, of what to do. Because when I went to apply to, do, to come to Trinity, um, that's what I wanted, to come to university. I was passionate. I was, had this very romantic notion about what a university was about. And I wanted to go to what I thought was the university that I thought the Trinity was like. And when I was <laughs> filling out uh, the form, only then did I discover that Trinity didn't do architecture, oh, no. <laughs> nor town planning. Yeah. <laughs> so I was really stuck and I didn't know what to do. I, had, so I wondered about law. I wondered about English. I wondered about history. And then as a last resort, I said, I'll do science because (laughs) so. I'm sure your mom was delighted with that as a last resort. At least. (laughs) But they didn't really pay attention. You see, things have changed so much. You know, you just got on with it. Yeah. So long as you went off and and you did some work. What, uh, like, where did your mom work? Like, was it in a lab or? no, no. She had originally, yeah, she got it. We, they emigrated in 1959 when I was only a year or no, earlier, earlier. When I was only a year, things were really bad for architects and, and signed everybody in Ireland. And so mm-hmm. they emigrated to Montreal and she, because of, she was taught by Conway, she got a job as a research assistant in a lab in Montreal, in a hospital lab in Montreal with a, an endocrinologist who was measuring iodine uptake to measure um, thyroid activity. So he took her on thinking she'd know how to calculate because the um, radioactive units were called Conways back then. He thought she'd be able to do it. Anyway, she loved, she loved that year. And then she had another child. And when they came back to Ireland, I think they came back to Ireland in the 60s. I think she worked for a little bit, but because she had two small children, she stopped. And she stopped working for about 10 years. And then she did the HDIP and, uh, yeah, and ended up teaching science. And so she taught science for years in the Crescent Comprehensive in Limerick. So even still people come up to me and say, oh, your, your mother taught me at school. God, wow. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. I gather she's a wonderful teacher. Well, I, I, 
this is from the students. I know she was an absolutely wonderful teacher for our, you know, the way she kind of introduced us to, to science. I would talk about it at home. She's always really, really interested. It still is. She'd mm. still be, she's quizzing me at the moment about COVID. <laughs> I can only imagine. So, yeah. so, so uh, you didn't actually go to her school then, so that you were sent, no, sent no, down to no, alone? Because no, the Crescent wasn't there at times. So when I was 11, the Jesuits had a, a school in Mungrath. That's where she taught in a, in a, in a boarding school in no, actually, it was after. It was much later that she taught. But when I so in nineteen in the sixties, no, there were there were very few options in Limerick, and there wasn't the transport. You see, mm. um, again, it's hard for you to imagine. <laughs> but uh, there were no buses, so it would have been really the only the nearest um, secondary school was in Limerick City, which at that stage seemed a very long to, long way from Adair, and so that's why many of us in the country got sent to boarding schools. And was that like, you know, what was it like arriving down to the Midlands and to Athlone? Was it kind of a bit of a culture shock? Total. But I loved it. I was, I just loved it. I had been completely, I was just so naive. I was completely, I loved all the um, Enid Blyton books about yeah. the boarding schools yeah, and all yeah. of this sort of stuff. And where we lived in Adair was a bit outside the village. So I didn't have lots of friends close living close by mm. and that's the bit that I loved about the boarding school as well as the horses <laughs> the fact that you're, they're just loads and loads of people and some of my very best friends even still are, are are from from those days yeah god so so I suppose you were fast forward then you were last resort was science and trinity um, and went to trinity, yeah. yeah so talk to me you about your, your time as an undergrad student there well, you were asking me, did I study zoology? So I did natural sciences mm. and, uh, and really, again, was miserable, not again, was miserable, but just about the science, wasn't convinced at all, hated um, chemistry, was terrified of physics. I hadn't done that as, uh, and the only thing I liked was the biology. And that's because actually biology, the first, the first year it had been done as the leaving search was the year before I went to Trinity. And um, five of us up in the bower had decided to do it. And uh, she said she'd coach us. So it was the first time uh, a long distance, she, she was well ahead of her time. The first time long distance learning was done. There was nobody in the school who could teach biology. She had just started it down in the Crescent. And, and she, used to get, she came up and she gave us tutorials and she'd send us exam questions and correct them. Your mom? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, yes, so I did. Uh, yes, we got, I can't remember what I got. We all did really well. And we all got our honours, which in those days was the, the kind of the pinnacle. We all got our honours. So I loved that in Trinity. And as I say, this lecturer in zoology, um, Frank Giel, was absolutely inspirational. So I loved all of that. I managed to drag myself through the physics and chemistry enough to <laughs> scrape through <laughs> I mean, I really did, was, did very badly and uh, then couldn't decide what to specialize in for moderatorship for, for the second. So the first two years you do general, mm. that was the way it was back in those days. I think it's kind of the same still, hasn't changed that much. And then you specialize what we call the sophister years in third and fourth year. And so for that, and again, actually, my mother was um, influential. I had toyed with the idea of doing psychology. Trinity experimented with having psychology in the sciences the year that I was in second year. And so I did a lot of psychology in second year and loved it. But my parents were very disparaging. They said, some of my best friends now are psychologists. This is really horrific. And I understand hugely what they do. But at the time they said, well, what can you actually do with psychology? That's not of, no, that's not of any use to anybody. <laughs> sort of what they said. So I also loved microbiology. 
And I thought, well, okay, microbiology might be my mother thought that was a that was a good idea. Mm. And uh, she was very friendly with the wife of uh, a, a, a professor of pathology, wonderful man, Dermot Harahan, the professor of pathology in, in Trinity. And by complete chance, because we, uh, my parents were rarely in Dublin, but there was some day that we were, at, we were, they were in Dublin and went out to visit the house. And he asked me, what was I going to do? And I said, I was thinking of microbiology. And he said, oh, that'll be really useful. We really need scientists. We need research scientists in the hospitals. And so that was a very kind of, what would you call it, a very per- perceptive thing to have said for somebody. This Because we're talking now back in the 70s. Mm. And, you know, for that, the idea that people would do um, research in the clinical sciences, that scientists would do clinical research, was really not a, a frequent path. I did the microbiology in the Moyne and absolutely loved that and um, did my research project in immunology. And there we go. <laughs> Uh, and and also a question I, I tend to ask people is, you know, looking back, was there kind of particular mentor or person who really encouraged you? And I feel like your your mother definitely was that person. But yes. was there anyone in, in kind of your undergrad or in school who, who did that as well? Well, that man that I just mentioned, now we had very little interaction with them. But so he was partly actually the reason why I came to Trinity. I, my mother sent me, me up to Dublin to stay with them when I was only 11. God. That's it. I think when I was 11, I came up for a summer holiday. He had a daughter about my age and they were just lovely people. And I had a fantastic time staying with them. And he took us on a trip once and drove around the outside of Trinity and <laughs> made some comment about Catholics not being allowed to go there. That was the, the rule had only just changed. And uh, he was actually one of the first, no, that's it. He was, uh, it was unusual. He was a Catholic to become a professor when he was a can, this was kind of, and he was telling us a little bit about that. And I was thinking to myself, that's ridiculous. Catholics <laughs> can't go to that university, it's, especially because he was telling us it was the best university in Ireland. You know? yeah. uh, so that caused a little bit of consternation with my parents because they had both been UCD. Okay. And yeah, 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 yeah. And, but they were terribly open-minded. It was just at one stage, was it either my mother or my father said, well, UCD was good enough for us. <laughs> I think there is kind of a slight rivalry still, still there. I, I, I did my undergrad in UCD and then I moved for postgrad to Trinity, but uh, yeah. no, I, I equally they share a place in my heart. I think. Heart, good, good, good. Because yeah, yeah I, exactly. I mean, and there are just wonderful things like I've described about Conway, out and then the School of Architecture where my father did architecture. You know, it was a, it was a really really is a really excellent one. My sister did architecture there then, so I do have a lot of interaction. Oh, and always have had a lot of interaction with UCD mm. I collaborate a lot with we even stood all through the years you know so and sure I was 14 years attached to it yes we'll that. so I'm also interested so you were you started your or you did your fourth year project in immunology and then did you go straight into a PhD or was there a break before that uh, no I went straight in um, I didn't think I, I hadn't thought at all of doing it and I could, it was so different back then very few people thought about doing a PhD it wasn't the author, sort of like nowadays about 50% of every sophister year probably does a PhD or certainly in microbiology, biochemistry and immunology mm. um, and genetics. I'd say nearly 50% of those classes do PhDs. But um, no, I had, um, I love teaching. I used to always, I had done quite a bit of teaching and at, at both primary school level and there's whole stories around how I was able to do primary school teaching in England. I had done some in a prep school there. And I had actually um, subbed for my mother once. 
<laughs> she went on holidays and I went into the Crescent Comprehensive and taught science in there. Um, so I love the idea of, and then because she was clearly loved her job and my grandmother on my father's side was a teacher. There was lots of teachers. So mm. I had, I thought of doing the HDIP and then someone had mentioned to me about doing a PhD because I'd loved the research. That's it. But in those days, there were no grants, no funds, nothing. But uh, I went across to the clinician, John Greeley, who had taught us some immunology. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll take you on. <laughs> oh, £1,100 £1, is what you got per year. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> it's just so poor. It was just so hard. And I was just so bad at it. <laughs> just the whole thing was a mess my poor parents they came up one day to Dublin as I said not very often so this was one of their visits and they take me out to out to lunch and or to supper and uh, we're out there in supper and then I said I start bawling my eyes out I was just so miserable and they were shocked because I had never really been that I'd shown that amount of misery before yeah and because they had never had no experience of doing a PhD they didn't they didn't know what to do. And it's just, it was, and I see all the first, nearly 90% of first year PhD students go through this, this feeling of floundering, not knowing what you're doing, thinking that you're useless at it, not being able to see your way out. Mm. And it's all because it's, it's all just so lonely. You're the yeah. only one working on this topic and you're, no matter who it is that's supervising you, you'll either have someone breathing down your neck the whole time getting mad at you or you'll have somebody who ignores you the whole time and you're completely <laughs> lost there's no such thing as the perfect phd supervisor so and uh, so like within your lab were there other phd students or were you kind of the only one there <laughs> the, the, the john really was just no funding he he had taken on because at that stage in iraq iraq the iraq government was providing grants for people to get phds and completely without testing anybody he had taken on this uh, one. So there was one Iraqi called Sana, an Iraqi doctor, and uh, a scientist called Ismail. And if I was bad, they were a million times worse <laughs> because they came from a totally different culture. Their country was at war. Yes. <laughs> they had had such bad training. So the, this is the three people who were doing a PhD. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, but so, I you, mean... You, you, Sorry, go on. You'll have to, sorry for interrupting you, but you'll have to um, interview Kingston Mills because he was doing a PhD at the same, in the same building. I was in right. the School of Pathology, which used to be um, where, what's it called, Parsons is now. The big building behind the Moyne and Trinity, mm. it's, it's called the Parsons and bioengineers are in there. But when you walk in, it's unchanged from when we were doing our, so he was doing his PhD in a different department under a different supervisor, but an equally detached supervisor. But Kingston, of course, was just much more determined and, you know, he wasn't going to fail, whereas I was constantly assuming I was going to fail. <laughs> <laughs> you got you got through it and you got there did it get better as the years went on uh, objectively I did uh, but uh, on paper I did but I certainly didn't feel I did but okay. uh, I know I, in terms of enjoying my ah, no 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 it certainly got, all got much much better my PhD mm. was on um, celiac disease which mm. is uh, an immune response to wheat protein um, in the intestine and, and I was doing it with uh, Donald Weir, who was the prof of medicine at the time, who was a, an absolutely wonderful man. If you're asking about mentors, I'll mention a couple of more. 
but he was absolutely wonderful. Completely useless as a scientific a PhD supervisor. He'd never supervised a PhD before. I was his first and only PhD student. But in terms of inspiring me academically and intellectually and, you know, as being really, really curious. I mean, he just loved new information and immunology was taking off at the time and he loved it all. So it was wonderful to be working with somebody like that. And there was also another very inspirational person who was running the routine immunology labs for the hospitals. That's, I was in a routine lab. That's where the routine labs were. Mm-hmm. And um, Alex Whelan was his name. He was another person who was passionate about immunology. And there was so much happening in the field. Like, that was all very exciting. So I suppose so you started with celiac disease, but then you moved into mm-hmm. the liver. And uh, I don't know if you want to jump in there, but I was just going to say the the immune system in the liver was quite a, you know, uh, not known thing at the time. And I think you were one of the first people to kind of flag this or, or yeah. discover that there was a, a immunology as such uh, within yeah. within the organ of the liver. Well, it was because of the PhD in celiac disease and having thought about what's happening in the intestine and and the immune system, like up to then, when everybody, when anybody talked about immunology, they talked all the time about what happened in the blood. Mm. And if they studied mice, it was, you know, they used spleen uh, to to get enough cells to study. So everything that we knew about immunology had been learned from, basically from the blood or from mouse spleen. And in the, when I was just finishing my PhD, I finished it in 81, 82. That was, what was beginning to happen was a realization that actually the immune system is happening everywhere. And in particular, the gas, or at least the, an interest was emerging in the gastrointestinal tract. And people realized that there was a, an, a massive immune system in the gastrointestinal tract. And so I went off after my PhD. I did some time up in St. James's as a postdoc. And then we traveled, myself and my husband spent two years in the UK and two years in the US. And when I came back, the first job, I was back for a few years, but then the first job I got was in Vincent's. And the year that I got the job in Vincent's, it was director of the research labs. It was 1993. And that was the year of the first liver transplant. Mm. And Vincent's was the National Transplant Center. And I got very good advice. When you talk about a mentor, a wonderful friend and colleague, Richard Gallagher, who is now actually, he'd be a great person for you to podcast. He is, and he'd love to chat to you. He's now editor of all the annual reviews. People will have heard of the annual reviews of genetics, the annual reviews of immunology. There's about 30 in the stable. He's overall editor of the lot. But he had been in a postdoc in St. James's at the same time as I did, I was, and we got on really, really well. And he had moved on to become editor of immunology in science, it's science, the Science Journal, and he used to stay in touch. And when he heard about me starting in Vincent's, he was really enthusiastic, really excited. He said, it's a great job. And one of the pieces of advice he, sa- he said was to align some research with whatever was the major strength of the hospital. And the major strengths of the hospital at the time were rheumatoid arthritis. So that Barry Bresnahan, who was a, a really, really brilliant leader in um, research in rheumatoid arthritis. And so that was something that I had a little bit of interest in. And I used to work quite really well with Barry. But um, what had also started was this liver, mm-hmm. the liver transplantation. And what, uh, what I found out was that the liver, when you transplant the liver, liver patients need far, far less immunosuppression than recipients of um, either small of organs like the kidney or the, the heart. 
And I remember thinking, that's really odd. Why do they need much less immunosuppression? And then I thought, well, you know, maybe it's kind of like the gut and it has a whole immune system of its own and that the immune system is somehow changing the immune system of the recipient. And I said it to somebody, I said it, it was the prof of, of pathology there at the time, um, are there immune systems, or are there, are there um, lymphocytes in healthy liver? And he said, no, there are no lymphocytes in healthy liver. And I thought and thought about it. And one of the, the was really some very interesting papers were coming out at the time that would suggest that there were um, lymphocytes in the liver. And I said, I think there, there are. And he said, if you go looking for lymphocytes in the liver, it'll be a sign that it's damaged. And I remember thinking to myself, because I really had a sense that he wasn't right and that he didn't know what he was talking about. So I went on and did it anyway. It took years to get all the techniques right and to get the logistics work. But we discovered, we were amongst the first to discover that the liver, not only does it have a huge amount of immune cells, but they're, in a, they're very unique repertoires. And there are loads of, no, it was known already that liver was packed with macrophages, your cell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we now know that there are loads of lymphocytes. So it's a, from an immunological point of view, it's a fascinating organ. So that started all of that research, yeah. And that's not only in diseased liver or maybe cancerous liver, but also in healthy. Exactly. So that's what his experience, in fairness now to him, his experience up to then had always been of diseased liver. Mm-hmm. Because pathology, you'd only ever see. And as you, the, the, the liver is very difficult to biopsy. You know, there's a health risk attached to biopsying the liver. So very, very little research was done on healthy liver. And this is what I was setting up in Vincent's, is trying to get hold of a bit of, of some normal liver. And that was ethically and technically challenging because it's an enormous operation to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and the last thing anybody is, uh, anybody is thinking about is, is research. You know, so that's why I say logistically it was very difficult to set up. But we had enormous support from the clinicians, the pathologists, the surgeons, everyone. And um, from 1994, there was always a clinician doing research on the liver side. So I think about five, about eight did MDs in liver. And there's at least four or five surgeons did higher degrees with me on liver biology. So that was our strength. And that's what we became famous for across the world were the studies that we did in normal healthy liver. And then showing how the immune system, how there is an immune system in the healthy liver, and then how it gets perturbed in disease. But like, how did you do that? Like, how, you know, with with the ethics and everything, and people coming in for for surgeries, were these just volunteers, or how did you get people to um, persistence? <laughs> yeah, um, and the the ethical interpretation really, you're asking a really good question. The ethical interpretation, you couldn't get permission from the donor of the liver. Because that person, by the time when you come to harvest the liver, that person is brain dead. Okay, yeah. So um, the ethics decision was, it was deemed that at that stage, the liver was now the property of the recipient. So you got permission from the recipient to take a biopsy of their liver before it went into their body. Okay. Yeah, that was the way that that was interpreted. And at the same time, then they would, we would ask for permission. The doctors would ask the recipient for permission to take some of their diseased liver as well. So we would take a little bit of of their diseased liver. And um, so in those days, they were being transplanted mostly actually for the complications of hepatitis C. Mm. Um, but also autoimmune disease. And then people whose livers had been destroyed by alcohol but who were now no longer taking alcohol, 
would be considered for transplantation. So there, w- there would be some of those as well. And so you see quite, and then some for malignancy. And then that was another source of liver tissue that we, we got. And we've done some really interesting work or started some. I mean, it's really got to go an awful lot more. But patients who come in to be resected for liver cancer. So there's two types of liver cancer, either caused by primary. A primary can be caused by, by infection or autoimmune disease. Or a lot of patients who've got, who have colorectal cancer get um, liver metastases. And the, the immune system of the healthy liver is full of NK cells, gamma delta T cells, and CD8, cytotoxic T cells, which are all anti-cancer populations. So that's the big puzzle. If your liver is so well equipped with um, anti-tumor cells, why do some people, how come cancer grows in the liver in some people? And so that is a big question that uh, I would still love to answer that needs to be answered. What is it about the people who get the liver mets? What is it about their liver? I think you, you, you do work on NK cells as well. And, and what kind of strategies yeah. are you looking at or what, within kind of uh, liver metastases? Yeah, well, we're looking at the, micro, at the microenvironment. So we're looking at the microenvironment of the people who have liver metastasis in comparison to those that don't. And there was a really nice paper that came out uh, last, last year, I think it was, or the year before, by, by a surgeon who did a higher degree on it, um, Fiona Hand, where she was showing that the people who, that there's quite a different in the cytokine micro, and growth factor microenvironment of those that, that do badly. So it's actually a prognostic marker. Mm-hmm. You might be aware of a whole field that has opened up, driven by this wonderful French researcher, Jerome Gallon where he shows that the immune repertoire at the time of cancer, uh, if you measure that, that will give you a really good idea of how well the patient will do. So um, understanding what it's like at the time of the cancer is growing, it can tell you about whether the immune system can be active or can be protective. And so that makes it a really good target, therapeutic target. So there's something kind of within these immune cells in the liver that they're defective and that they're not... Exactly. you know, attacking the cancer. Proper, exactly. They're, they're being suppressed. Mm. Um, and so whether it's the microenvironment, uh, what it is of the microenvironment that's suppressing them, is it uh, something to do with the liver itself or is it to do with the liver's interaction with, uh, with the cancer, that when the cancer comes in, you know, a bit like uh, we, we know that cancer drives checkpoint inhibitor expression, but does mm-hmm. it also create, and we do know, um, Kahal Arman was a guy who did a PhD with me who's now, actually he'd be another good, he'd be a great person, another great person for you to talk to. <laughs> yeah. Write them down. In, do, do. Because yeah, yeah, could you give you a completely different perspective? So he's postdocing with um, Lydia Lynch in Harvard now. So he's been over there now for a whole year, but he had done his PhD on NK cells in liver mets. And uh, he was showing that meta- their metabo- the, the NK cells are metabolically compromised. And he showed that um, lactate that would be produced by the metabolism of the cancer cell actually kind of um, suppresses NK function. Okay. So th- there's, there's several angles that need to be teased apart. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting area. Um, but you also touched on it there as well, the hepatitis C virus. And, and how did that research come about? And, and I think, you know, there's the whole anti-D scandal, um, which yeah. I've, I've read up about. So maybe give me an overview of that, because I think that's just absolutely fascinating and how you, you got that study off the ground as well. Um, well, just uh, yes, part of the, uh, some of the people who were coming for transplantation were people who were infected with hepatitis C. And around that time, in the 90s, 
it, the story was emerging about how some rhesus-negative women, when they were given the, the treatment for rhesus to prevent hemolytic disease of the unborn, which happens if a rhesus-negative woman has a fetus who is rhesus-positive. So in other words, if her partner has been rhesus-positive and the fetus is rhesus-positive, the rhesus-negative rhesus woman, because she hasn't got the antigens herself, will make antibodies against them. And that doesn't happen in the first pregnancy. So the first child is fine. It's the, it happens when the baby is born and that the, the mother gets exposed to the antigen, makes the antibodies, and if in the subsequent pregnancy she has a rhesus-positive baby, it will suffer mm. some degree and can often die. So the treatment for this is to give what's called anti-D. It blocks, it blocks the production of the antibodies. And this has saved millions of babies across the globe. But it turned out in the 90s that a number of Irish women presented with a very strange illness and a brilliant path uh, pathologist, hematologist, Dan and Cork, began to see a pattern. She, she saw three or four patients, rhesus negative, the strange illness, and she realized that they were all rhesus negative. And then she worked backwards and realized that they had got anti-D in the 70s. And then um, this, this, this all happened in the 90s, just after the hepatitis C virus was discovered. So she started a whole study that went back and looked at all the women who, all the rhesus negative women who got anti-D between 77 and 79. And it turned out that 600 of them had antibodies to hepatitis C. Yeah. All from one donor. God. Just the way um, the donor came back, the donor gave, um, donated on three or four occasions, the blood hurt, the, the donor's blood products were used to make anti-D and they're made in big batches, in batches mm. of anti-D given to lots. It turned out that actually 1,200 women got contaminated anti-D. 600 women were found to be antibody positive 12 years later. And of those, half were still virus positive, PCR positive, still had the virus. So 600 had been exposed to the virus and developed antibodies. And of those, some of them were still chronic. And then of those, they were starting to get ill. Their livers were starting. So um, one of them had to come for liver transplantation. But little, so little was known about the immunology of hepatitis C and how it was happening. And so a whole lot of um, research, the HRB, the Health Research Board, was funding research into hepatitis C. So I was part of a consortium between Trinity and UCD. Dermot Kelleher led it and the previous head of the Virus Reference Lab, Billy Hall, were the two PIs and an awful lot of work was done looking at the adaptive, the T-cell response to the virus. But during that time, I was really interested in the women who had got the contaminated anti-D but didn't get infected and who didn't make antibodies because people were, the whole innate immune response was becoming very interesting and a lot was being known about it. And so I had this idea that there must be some women whose innate immune system were able to clear, was able to clear the virus before they made antibodies. Mm -hmm. but I was told once again I was told I was being ridiculous because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, I started talking about it in this instance and this very good friend of mine he's a wonderful he's another wonderful mentor it's John Hegarty uh, a really fantastic consultant hepatologist in uh, Vincent's and he used to say oh Cleana don't even start on that because you'll, you won't know for sure that they got it no 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 that's much too difficult to do so anyway several years later uh, when I was in Trinity I kept at it but it took me three goals to write the grant yeah, I wrote, I wrote it three times before I got it. But anyway, we've, we've, 
got a whole lot of really interesting data. We've recruited many, several women from that cohort. So they got contaminated anti-D, they did not make antibodies, and they did not get infected. And so therefore they were told and were sent away that they didn't get infected. But we think that there's something exceptional about their innate immune system. And how did you recruit those patients? Or the, well, I suppose they weren't patients because they didn't actually... No, they're not patients, have, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. So it was a national camp because of the ethics, when we went to look for ethics to recruit or to invite them to take part in the study, I thought the IBTS, the blood bank, had all their contact details and I thought we could just write a letter to them mm. and say, would you like to take part in the study? But um, we were told, no, ethically, we couldn't do that because they had been told that they would never be contacted again. Okay. So uh, we launched um, uh, a national campaign about four years ago and went on the radio, on the television and um, did local radio, actually. Yeah. And so we got a, a great response. Not big enough, mind you. Our numbers are still very small. But so I'd love to do, if, the, if your podcast becomes really famous, <laughs> maybe a few more will respond. But what I'm hoping to do is do exactly the same study in COVID infection. Mm. I think exactly the same. There are people who get exposed to the virus who do not get infected and who do not make an antibody response. Can I ask you just maybe it might be a silly question, but with regard to these patients or these people who didn't get the virus or the hepatitis C virus, do you think it's something in their liver specifically in their liver immune system or could it be in the periphery? Do you know, could it be in their circulating yeah, immune no, cells? I think it has to be. And that's, of course, you know, you're spot on. And, and that's, of course, what makes it really difficult. I do think it's in the liver. Mm. I do think that it's how the hepatocyte responds to the viral infection of those people. And so even though our volunteers have come, they're all in their 70s now. Mm. They've come forward and they've given us a saliva sample. So we're looking at the DNA, but our numbers are too small to be able to see a mutation in the DNA, I think. Okay. They've also given us blood samples and we can, we're, we're looking at changes in how their blood cells respond to the virus. But I really think it's, we can't get a liver biopsy. These are mm. healthy ladies, you know, in their seventies, you can't do a liver biopsy. So one of our approaches has been to make stem cells from their blood and then make liver cells from their stem cells. But I just wrote a grant to do exactly this. Just And I only heard, in the middle of COVID, did I? Yeah, in the middle of COVID, I heard it was rejected. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And the reviewers are right. We need more preliminary data. Because if you think about trying to reprogram blood cells into mm-hmm. becoming stem cells, you know, you're going to change the characteristics. And then, you, then you're inducing them to become hepat- hepatocytes. So mm-hmm. unless it's a genetically driven change Mm. so i need to get now as it happens in the last grant i I was able to make stem cells from six i think we've got stem cells from six of our donors so there's a phd student who's on uh, on on an eu grant whose project is to differentiate those into hepatocytes i'm hoping he'll he he doesn't know all the pressure is on him now to get the (laughs) preliminary data for the next grant <laughs> because then you could kind of model what you know a, a, a liver cell would be i exactly. think that the whole area of stem cell biology is fascinating and the fact that yeah. you can and i spoke you know um in, to another guy michael monaghan in trinity and he works oh. on stem cells as well i collaborate he, with him oh do you okay yeah, there you yeah, go yeah 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 that's a, so we, so we, um because part of of what i think is happening is in the hepatocytes is a change in the metabolism and i wanted to use his technique so he, yeah, Flim, exactly. Mm. So he was a collaborator on that proposal. 
So I was so sad for him because, you know, I'm, I'm near the end of my research career, but I was hoping that he'd be able to take it off. But uh, he's very, very positive. So we're yeah. going again. Yeah, I actually use phlegm during my PhD. It's it's a brilliant, brilliant technique. Okay. Yeah, oh, with the synovial nice tissue macrophages, which again, like for my research, I'm interested in kind of the tissue resident macrophages and kind of what yes. you're saying to the yeah. like the immune cells in the blood. So yeah. we we actually took the biopsies from the patient's knees. I isolated yes. out this specific type of macrophage, which I'm seeing as yes. the dominant one, uh, right. and then we ran phlegm on it, which was amazing. Yeah. Gosh. Because another and could you see differences? So you, did you get it working? Oh, I didn't mm. realize that. Yeah, Ashley, I knew he was. Con- I knew he was collaborating with Ashling Dunn on the my- on the cardiomyocytes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, So so what I was seeing is this kind of dominant uh, macrophage population. I I, and then I sorted out the double negatives, which are actually enriched in the fluid. Double negative for what? Uh, Sorry, it's uh, yeah, I'm so used to this terminology. It's uh, CD206 and CD163. Uh, they're, they're macrophage markers. Um, So they're actually typical of a homeostatic M2 macrophage. So anti-inflammatory, which obviously was really interesting because why are they the dominant, and they also express high levels of CD40, which shouldn't be on them. So they're neither okay, an M1 okay. or an M2, you know, that kind of way. But yet they are yet kind of different themselves, because that's exactly one of, the, one, of the, one of the components was to make macrophages right. was, uh, from the stem cells. There's a woman called Leslie Forrester in uh, Edinburgh, and we were going to, because we, what we wanted to do was make organoids Mm. Um, again, part of this is in collaboration. The fourth collaborator is a wonderful hepatocyte, a person who makes hepatocyte-like cells from stem cells in Edinburgh called David Hay. And so what David, Leslie, myself and Michael were going to do were make, was make hepatocytes and macrophages from resistant, some of our resistant women and from control women and mix, make organoids with yeah. the uh, with uh, resistant hepatocytes and sensitive monocytes and the other way around and then try and infect them with hepatitis C. That was what the project. And with the flame, you were probably interested in the metabolism then. Exactly, see. exactly. Because um, I was happy. Oh, yes, so we were going to be doing these experiments on the differentiated cells before we glued them together and use viral ligands to stimulate both the macrophages and the hepatocytes with to look at their immunometabolic response to the viral ligands. But well, I mean, you have to just write up another grant. grant this, yeah. this is the whole thing. And, and actually throughout this podcast, I do ask people like, you know, what's the most frustrating aspect of academia or, you know, and then on the flip side, what they love about it. But it is yeah. the rejection, I think, is, has to be yeah. the, the, one of the most frustrating things. I don't know if you agree. Oh, of course it is. Of course it is. It's devastating. But at the same time, you say, at the same time, it's part of the process and it, and you can't go into research unless you have, I think, this philosophy that you just have to keep going at it and making it better. That if it's not, if it gets rejected, it's because you haven't persuaded them. And there's no point getting angry at them, you know, at whoever it is doesn't get your brilliant idea. You just have to keep keep at it and, and modifying it, making it better. And then if it keeps getting rejected, you have to say to yourself, well, was it such a good idea in the first place? Years later, you will, like I look back at, I mean, every single grant I've put in has been rejected at least twice. <laughs> and, and when I look back on it, I realize, no, because I wasn't clear enough in mm. my, I mean, there are some people who are just geniuses at writing. I mean, I used to be on the, um, the view panel of uh, the review panel for the HRB the health research one back in those days all the scientists used to apply and uh you'd get this application and you'd read it i remember just 
get so frustrated with this. And, and then it, they kind of mix and match. And then this, gosh, here's a brilliant one. It happened to me so many times and it was always Luke O'Neill's. <laughs> I mean, Luke O'Neill, because I'd be blinded to it. And then you'd be unblinded afterwards. He said, flip, he just writes such a good grant application. <laughs> so it's the same with the papers you know if the papers mm. sometimes yeah they're not reviewed well and somebody misses the point um and so you have a legitimate reason for complaint but many 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 times the reasons are you know and you'll turn it into a better paper if yeah. you respond i know but that's hard to see at the time i think but- oh, but I have a I have a, an MSc student at the moment, wonderful girl, Janine from China, and uh, she's really really great at the MSc at the research. But she was asking me about it, or she wanted to do a PhD with me, and then I'm asking her about the research, and she said she finds this boring, and she doesn't like that, and that's difficult. I said I think a PhD is not for you. <laughs> so she's trying. I'd be interested now to see how it goes when she comes to the end of her project. She begins to get that the kick and the high from getting interesting results, you know, yeah. or be, be, beginning, being able to see where her project ties into an unanswered gap. But really, if, if you are a person who normally who finds things boring, finds things difficult, and finds it difficult to respond to difficulty, yeah, and uh, nobody will talk to students about that. All mm. they talk about is how, ex- how exciting the project is. Nobody will tell them how difficult the process is. <laughs> No, it definitely is. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, the PhD, there's a lot of, you know, the money is one side of it because, you know, yeah. you're, you're, I mean, it's the, the stipend, I suppose, is better now compared to what you were talking about. But still, and I think rent in Dublin as well, that's a yeah. huge, huge thing. Yeah. And then, yeah, it is kind of lonely because, like you said, nobody exactly. really gets, I actually, so I, I finished my PhD about a um, month ago and in my Viva, which is, you know, your defense and you have to defend your thesis, mm. I, I was worried about it, understandably. But actually, when I got in there, I was like, this is the, probably one of the first times people have been very interested in what I've done. Exactly. And I was delighted because I've spent, you know, nearly four years on this. So um, exactly. it actually was an enjoyable experience at the end because, you know, you got to kind of go through the process yes. Of, yes. Of, of what you, what you did. But um, yes. I'm also just, what do you love most about research or, or academia? All of that, the buzz of all of that. I mean, to be working on such exciting stuff that we really don't know anything about. So the two things, so it's the science, the actual science is just so fascinating. And look at this, I know this COVID thing is tragic, but the, from an immunological point of view, it's just fascinating. Mm. Um, and as to how, the, trying to figure out why do some bodies, the bodies respond to this infectious agent in some ways. And oh, the, so all of that is just fascinating. And then the people, you know, like you, you just encounter such fantastic and the conversations that you can have about the science, like even talking all about the NKs, like even just there, what we've been chatting about, you know, mm. the macrophages and thinking about the M2s and how, how similar to, uh, I'm thinking, as you're talking about all of that, how similar are the Kupfer cells in the liver to your macrophages in the synovium? And what yeah. is it about the microenvironment that makes them that way and different to what um, the blood people call the M1 and the M2 macrophages? And, yeah, you know, yeah. So you just I'm immediately, you know, go, your mind is going in several different directions at once, you know, and I have to check up oh, and the 163 is on and <laughs> the liver macrophages. So all of that. Then there's the literature, you know, and you're in touch with people across the world. That's you meet. It's like minded people and from across the world. I mean, I've been to such fantastic meetings 
in place and even by zoom it's nowadays it's still mm. it's really great this feeling of a network of people and that you know and this is why twitter is so exciting somebody writes a paper that you know and 12 people that you know from across the world are responding to it yeah you know there's there's no other career that's uh, i don't know whether there is but that's what i just love about the career and here i am years later <laughs> it was start starting into the whole immunology thing and i feel i mean like uh, the amount of immunology that we know has expanded a uh, hundredfold, but my, uh, thousands of folds. What am I talking about? Thousands, like the amount that we know is so much more than we did. But yet my feeling is I still don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> you still have to read more books. You have to read yeah. more journals, go to more talks, listen more, talk with more people. <laughs> Something else I wanted to ask you is how did you juggle kind of family life with your career in academia, because that must have been quite hard. Oh, or did yeah, it's really hard. Of course, it's terribly hard. But, you know, everybody, everybody has challenges. You know, I often look at people, who, say, who don't have children, and they have all sorts of difficulties going on in their lives. And then you add in the children, and the amount of difficulties haven't really changed. <laughs> I don't know how to explain that mm. properly. Uh, so I don't know that. Um, I have a wonderful partner. And uh, I mean, even though he's got a very, very, very demanding career, but he was an absolutely fantastic father. But I was only telling, telling one of them, my, my kids are 27, 29 and 31 now. Okay. <laughs> so I have such, we were talking about it the other day, uh, just how, how different the whole lockdown thing is for me with my children at that stage compared to having small, mm. let's say Rachel McLaughlin has three small children at home and to be thinking about looking after them and the homeschooling. I just don't know how young people do it. But a thing that young people really don't appreciate is how wonderful it is to be constantly working with young people. Mm. So that's an enormous privilege of this job, you know, is that you're constantly meeting new young people you know there's this constant stream it's a resource people don't realize it the bright young people coming along all the time enthusiastic positive wanting to do different things like you doing the podcast and that's what it's like having children yeah. as well you know they, you just, it's just such a privilege to have these little creatures in your life you know so that you so you want to in, in, include them it's not as whereas i think bef before you have children you just imagine it's all a, a difficulty a challenge and work right. and and of course it is mm. but there's an enormous reward enormous rewards for it very difficult to describe and so Clita, one of the last questions i'm going to ask you which i kind of tend to ask all my guests is if you weren't in science where do you think you would have ended up would you have been an architect do you think i've been or a town planner <laughs> oh every time i look at where people put up buildings i say you're absolutely right town planning is exactly what you should have got into oh no i've absolutely no idea <laughs> absolutely no idea um, but i do know and i'm always saying this to young people who come looking for career advice i think most of us can actually be quite competent at a lot of things. Mm. And so it's a lot to do with an attitude. So I think whatever it was I was doing, I'd be enjoying it. And I think that's another thing, yeah, I always like to try and tell or help kind of young people to do is to make the career suit them rather than them suit the career. And so that actually, that, that's a very important piece of the way when you say how mm. I did it with the children. That's, yes, I made a whole lot of career decisions around the fact that I really wanted to have kids and that I had kids. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So when we came back from the States, um, I just had one small child and uh, jobs were terrible in Ireland at the time. But I, I made, and I only really realized it in, in retrospect, I made the decision that I wasn't going to work nine to five. I wasn't going to work in the pharmaceutical industry. I didn't want to be told. So that meant I was going back into the academic. And so I was looking for grants. And that put me around. I had been teaching in Harvard and people are doing research in Harvard. And people had thought I was going to walk into some really cushy job back in Ireland. (laughs) That wasn't the case at all. And so it was really tough. But I had decided I was not going to work full time. And so I think with the first child, I worked four days a week. And then when I was in Vincent's, I was worked four days a week and one, week, one day a week at home, four days in, in mm. Vincent's and one day at home. And, uh, and then when my husband moved to, we moved to Wexford, I used to be two days a week in Vincent's and two days a week working from home and one day. Now, inevitably, when you're in research, you actually end up working far more than 40 hours, you know, because you're writing grants or papers yeah. that end up into the middle of the night. And that made it all possible. And I remember saying it to Ursula when she had her first child, actually. I remember saying that to her. You should make a decision to carve and create your day, create your week and create your year to suit you, not mm. some pattern that someone tells you you should be following. Yeah. And, and I think academia is quite flexible in that sense and that you can uh, kind of work your own hours as opposed to the nine to five strict exactly. industry that you're well, talking It's about. all going to be blown apart. I hope it's all going to be blown apart now by COVID and everybody realizing actually a lot of work can be done mm-hmm. outside of the office. Do you all, does everybody have to be in there? And even like I, I'm from Westmead, so I'm actually home here now, even though I was back yeah. in the lab last week. But, you know, I, I said to Ursa, can I work two days at home this week and I'll be back up in Dublin? So, yeah, definitely. And you Good can. For you. That was considered so back when I started doing it, that was considered very strange. And I, I you know, I, I heard afterwards that people thought I was committing career suicide. <laughs> and people, some people felt sorry for me. Some people gave out about me. And I just I was just too busy to pay attention to them. <laughs> So, yeah. You were probably more productive, though, in those three days that you were in. Absolutely. I mean, when I look back, you can't actually see. Now I've taken to saying to people, that's what I achieved on 80% or 40, whatever the times were. You know, mm. that's, so it's much more to do with what you decide that you're going to achieve rather than, uh, but it's, it's more, I realize, look, I, I don't mean at all to be kind of, what would you say, to sound like as if I have the answers to everything because I, I absolutely don't have the answers. This is just what I did. Mm. And I know it's really tough for young people now. And even though I kind of am so enthusiastic about the advantages of Twitter, I know that for young people seeing all the time what other people are doing is a great source of um, what other people are achieving is a source Mm. of anxiety. And I understand all of that. And I think that is very challenging for young people. Yeah. And I know a big weight of this whole lockdown of COVID has fallen on the women, even, Mm. even women in wonderfully equitable partnerships nevertheless it's women's careers that are are going are going to suffer do you know that and i'm not sure what is the best way of of helping yeah no i I mean i suppose with time will tell in the next few months but the only the only thing i could think about covid and about you know research is that kind of everyone was at a standstill no one was really progressing you know and i think that's that's the way you have to kind of view it otherwise you'll get very caught up in i was meant to apply for this grant and i'm you know you know um yes yes but clina it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you thank you so much again for for coming on the podcast okay megan nice to Um, chat must follow up about the macrophages 
So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.